Chapter Two of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two Confucius. The highest study of all is that which teaches us to develop those principles of purity and perfect virtue which heaven bestowed upon us at our birth, in order that we may acquire the power of influencing for good those amongst whom we are placed, by our precepts and example, a study without an end, for our labors cease only when we have become perfect, an unattainable goal but one that we must not the less set before us from the very first. It is true that we shall not be able to reach it, but in our struggle toward it we shall strengthen our characters and give stability to our ideas, so that, whilst ever advancing calmly in the same direction, we shall be rendered capable of applying the faculties with which we have been gifted to the best possible account. The Annals of Confucius Confucius The Chinese comprise one-fourth of the inhabitants of the earth. There are four hundred millions of them. They can do many things which we cannot do, and we can do a few things which they have not yet been able to do. But they are learning from us, and possibly we would do well to learn from them. In China, there are now trolley cars, telephone lines, typewriters, cash registers, and American plumbing. China is a giant, awaking from sleep. He who thinks that China is a country crumbling into ruins has failed to leave a call at the office, and has overslept. The West cannot longer afford to ignore China, and not being able to waive her, perhaps the next best thing is to try to understand her. The one name that looms large above any other name in China is Confucius. He of all men has influenced China most. One third of the human race love and cherish his memory, and repeat his words as sacred writ. Confucius was born at a time when one of those tidal waves of reason swept the world, when the nations were full of unrest, and the mountains of thought were shaken with discontent. It was just previous to the blossoming of Greece. Pericles was seventeen years old when Confucius died. Themistocles was preparing the way for Pericles, for then was being collected the treasure of Delos, which made Phidias and the Parthenon possible. During the life of Confucius lived Leonidas, Miltiades, Cyrus the Great, Cambyses, Darius, Xerxes, and then quite naturally occurred the Battle of Marathon, Salamis, and Thermopylae. Then lived Buddha Gautama, Lao Tse, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Pythagoras, Pindar, Eschylus, and Anacreon. 
the Chinese are linked to the past by ties of language and custom beyond all other nations. They are a peculiar people, a chosen people, a people set apart. Just when they withdrew from the rest of mankind and abandoned their nomadic habits, making themselves secure against invasion by building a wall one hundred feet high, and settled down to lay the foundations of a vast empire, we do not know. Some historians have fixed the date about ten thousand years before Christ. Let it go at that. There is a reasonably well-authenticated history of China that runs back twenty-five hundred years before Christ, while our history merges into mist seven hundred fifty years before the Christian era. The Israelites wandered. The Chinese remained at home. Walls have this disadvantage. They keep people in, as well as shut the barbarians out. But now there are vast breaches in the wall, through which the inhabitants ooze, causing men from thousands of miles away to cry in alarm, THE YELLOW PERIL! And also through these breaches, Israelites, Englishmen, and Yankees enter fearlessly, settle down in heathen China, and do business. It surely is an epoch, and what the end will be, few there are who dare forecast. This, then, is from the pen of Edward Carpenter, the Church of England curate, who was so great a friend and admirer of our own Walt Whitman, that he made a trip across the sea to join hands with him in preaching the doctrine of democracy and the religion of humanity. In the interior of China, along low-lying plains and great river valleys, and by lakesides, and far away up into hilly and even mountainous regions, behold, an immense population, rooted in the land, rooted in the clan and the family, the most productive and stable on the whole earth, a garden, one might say, a land of rich and rechurch crops, of rice and tea and silk and sugar and cotton and oranges. Do you see it? Stretching away endlessly over river lines and lakes and the gentle undulations of the lowlands and up the escarpments of the higher hills, the innumerable patchwork of civilization, the poignant verdure of the young rice, the sombre green of orange groves, the lines of tea shrubs well hoed and showing the bare earth beneath, the pollard mulberries, the plots of cotton and maize and wheat and yam and clover, the little brown and green tiled cottages with spreading recurbed eaves, the clumps of feathery bamboo or of sugar canes, the endless silver threads of irrigation canals and ditches skirting the hills for scores and hundreds of miles, tier above tier, and serpentining down to the lower slopes and plains, the accumulated result, these, of centuries upon centuries of ingenious industry and innumerable public and private benefactions, continued from age to age. The Grand Canal of the Delta Plain extending, a thronged waterway, for seven hundred miles, with sails of junks and bankside villages innumerable, 
the chain pumps, worked by buffaloes or men, for throwing the water up slopes and hillsides, from tier to tier, from channel to channel, the endless rills and cascades flowing down again into pockets and hollows of verdure, and on fields of steep and plain. The bits of rock and wildwood left here and there, with the angles of Buddhist or Jain temples projecting from among the trees, the azalea and rhododendron bushes, and the wild deer and pheasants unharmed, the sounds of music and the gong, the sin fa sung at eventide, and the air of contentment and peace pervading. A garden you might call the land, for its wealth of crops and flowers, a town almost for its population, a population denser on a large scale than anywhere else on earth, five or six acre holdings elbowing each other with lesser and larger, continuously over immense tracts, and running to plentiful market centres, a country of few roads, but of innumerable footpaths and waterways. Here, rooted in the land and rooted in the family, each family clinging to its portion of ancestral earth, each offshoot of the family desiring nothing so much as to secure its own patrimonial field, each member of the family answerable primarily to the family assembly for his misdeeds or defalcations, all bound together in the common worship of ancestors and in reverence for the past and its sanctioned beliefs and accumulated prejudices and superstitions, with many ancient, wise, simple customs and ordinances coming down from remote centuries and the time of Confucius, this vast population abides, the most stable and the most productive in the world. And government touches it, but lightly, can touch it, but lightly. With its few officials, only some 25,000 for the whole of its 400 millions, and its scanty taxation, about one dollar per head, and with the extensive administration of justice and affairs by the clan and the family, little scope is left for government. The great equalized mass population pursues its even and accustomed way, nor pays attention to edict and foreign treaties, unless these command themselves independently. Pays readier respect in such matters to the edicts and utterances of its literary men, and the deliberations of the academy. And religious theorizing touches it but lightly, can touch it but lightly. Established on the bedrock of actual life, and on the living unity and community of present, past, and future generations, each man stands bound already, and by the most powerful ties to the social body, nor needs the dreams and promises of heaven to reassure him. And all are bound to the earth, rendering back to it as a sacred duty every atom that the earth supplies to them, not insensately sending it in sewers to the sea. By the way of abject common sense they have sought the gates of paradise, and to found 
on human soil their city celestial. The first general knowledge of Confucius came to the Western world in the latter part of the 16th century, from Jesuit missionaries. Indeed, it was they who gave him the Latinized name of Confucius, the Chinese name being Kung Fu Se. So impressed were these missionaries by the greatness of Confucius, that they urged upon the Vatican the expediency of placing his name upon the calendar of saints. They began by combating his teachings, but this they soon ceased to do, and the modicum of success which they obtained was through beginning each Christian service by the hymn which may properly be called the National Anthem of China. Its opening stanza is as follows. Confucius, Confucius, great was our Confucius. Before him there was no Confucius. Since him there was no other. Confucius, Confucius, great was our Confucius. The praise given by these early Jesuits to Confucius was at first regarded at Rome as apology for the meagre success of their ministrations. But later scientific study of Chinese literature corroborated all that the Jesuit fathers proclaimed for Confucius, and he stands today in a class with Socrates and the scant half-dozen whom we call the saviors of the world. Yet Confucius claimed no divine revelation, nor did he seek to found a religion. He was simply a teacher, and what he taught was the science of living, living in the present, with the plain and simple men and women who make up the world, and bettering our condition by bettering theirs. Of a future life he said he knew nothing, and concerning the supernatural he was silent, even rebuking his disciples for trying to pry into the secrets of heaven. The word God he does not use, but his recognition of a supreme intelligence is limited to the use of a word which can best be translated heaven, since it tokens a place more than it does a person. Constantly he speaks of doing the will of heaven, and then he goes on to say that heaven is speaking through you. Duty lies in mirroring heaven in our acts, and many other such new thought aphorisms or epigrams. That the man was a consummate literary stylist is beyond doubt. He spoke in parables and maxims, short, brief, and musical. He wrote for his ear, and always his desire, it seems, was to convey the greatest truth in the fewest words. The Chinese, even the lowly and uneducated, know hundreds of Confucian epigrams, and still repeat them in their daily conversation or in writing, just as educated Englishmen use the Bible and Shakespeare for symbol. Minister Wu, in a lecture delivered in various American cities, compared Confucius with Emerson, showing how, in many ways, these two great prophets paralleled each other. Emerson, of all Americans, seems the only man worthy of being so compared. The writer who lives is the man who supplies the world with portable wisdom, short, sharp, pithy maxims which it can remember 
or, better still, which it cannot forget. Confucius said, Every truth has four corners. As a teacher I give you one corner, and it is for you to find the other three. The true artist in words or things is always more or less impressionistic. He talks in parables, and it is for the hearer to discover the meaning for himself. An epigram is truth in a capsule. The disadvantage of the epigram is the temptation it affords to good people to explain it to the others, who are assumed to be too obtuse to comprehend it alone. And since explanations seldom explain, the result is a mixture or compound that has to be spewed utterly or taken on faith. Confucius is simple enough until he is explained. Then we evolve sects, denominations, and men who make it their profession to render moral calculi opaque. China, being peopled by human beings, has suffered from this tendency to make truth concrete, just as all the rest of the world has suffered. Truth is fluid and should be allowed to flow. Ankylosis of a fact is superstition. Confucius was a free trader. China has always been essentially feudal in her form of government. China is made up of a large number of states, each presided over by a prince or governor, and these states are held together by a rather loose federal government, the emperor being the supreme ruler. State rights prevail. State may fight with state, or states may secede. It isn't of much moment. They are glad enough, after a few years, to get back, like boys who run away from home, or farmhands who quit work in a tantrum. The Chinese are very patient. They know that time cures all things, a truth the West has not yet learned. States that rebel, like individuals who place themselves beyond the protection of all, assume grave responsibilities. The local prince usually realizes the bearing of the social contract, that he holds his office only during good behavior, and that his welfare and the welfare of his people are one. Hay, the father of Confucius, was governor of one of these little states, and had impoverished himself in an effort to help his people. Hay was a man of seventy, wedded to a girl of seventeen, when their gifted son was born. When the boy was three years old, the father died, and the lad's care and education depended entirely on the mother. This mother seems to have been a woman of rare mental and spiritual worth. She deliberately chose a life of poverty and honest toil for herself and child, rather than allow herself to be cared for by rich kinsmen. The boy was brought up in a village, and he was not allowed to think himself any better than the other village children, save as he proved himself so. He worked in the garden, tended the cattle and goats, mended the pathways, brought wood and water, and waited on his elders. Every evening his mother used to tell him of the feats of strength of his father, of his heroic qualities in friendship, of deeds of valour, of fidelity to trusts, of his absolute truthfulness, 
and his desire for knowledge in order that he might better serve his people. The coarse, plain fare, the long walks across the fields, the climbing of trees, the stooping to pull the weeds in the garden, the daily bath in the brook, all combined to develop the boy's body to a splendid degree. He went to bed at sundown, and at the first flush of dawn was up that he might see the sunrise. There were devotional rites, performed by the mother and son, morning and evening, which consisted in the playing upon a lute and singing or chanting the beauty and beneficence of creation. Confucius, at fifteen, was regarded as a phenomenal musician, and the neighbors used to gather to hear him perform. At nineteen he was larger, stronger, comelier, more skilled than any other youth of his age in all the country round. The simple quality of his duties as a prince can be guessed when we are told that his work as keeper of the herds required him to ride long distances on horseback to settle difficulties between rival herders. The range belonged to the state and the owners of goat, sheep, and cattle were in continual controversies. Montana and Colorado will understand this matter. Confucius summoned the disputants, and talked to them long about the absurdity of quarrelling and the necessity of getting together in complete understanding. Then it was that he first put forth his best-known maxim. You should not do to others that which you would not have others do to you. This negative statement of the golden rule is found expressed in various ways in the writings of Confucius. A literal interpretation of the Chinese language is quite impossible, as the Chinese have single signs or symbols that express a complete idea. To state the same matter, we often use a whole page Confucius had a single word which expressed the golden rule in such a poetic way that it is almost useless to try to convey it to people of the West. This word, which has been written into English as shu, means my heart responds to yours, or my heart's desire is to meet your heart's desire, or I wish to do to you even as I would be done by. This sign, symbol, or word Confucius used to carve in the bark of trees by the roadside. The French were filled with a like impulse when they cut the words liberty, fraternity, equality over the entrances to all public buildings. Confucius had his symbol of love and friendship painted on a board, which he stuck into the ground before the tent where he lodged and finally it was worked upon a flag by some friends and presented to him, and became his flag of peace. His success in keeping down strife among the herders and making peace among his people soon gave him a fame beyond the borders of his own state. As a judge, he had the power to show both parties where they were wrong and arranged for them a common meeting ground. His qualifications as an arbiter were not, however, limited to his powers of persuasion. He could shoot an arrow farther and hurl a spear with more accuracy 
than any man he ever met. Very naturally, there are a great number of folklore stories concerning his prowess, some of which make him out a sort of combination St. George and William Tell with the added kingly graces of Alfred the Great. Omitting the incredible, we are willing to believe that this man had a giant's strength, but was great enough not to use it like a giant. We are willing to believe that when attacked by robbers, he engaged them in conversation, and that, seated on the grass, he convinced them they were in a bad business. Also, he did not later hang them, as did our old friend Julius Caesar under like conditions. When twenty-seven, he ceased going abroad to hold court and settle quarrels, but sending for the disputants, they came, and he gave them a course of lectures in ethics. In a week, by a daily lesson of an hour's length, they were usually convinced that to quarrel is very foolish, since it reduces bodily vigor, scatters the mind, and disturbs the secretions. So the man is the loser in many ways. This seems to us like a very queer way to hold court, but Confucius maintained that men should learn to govern their tempers, do equity, and thus be able to settle their own disputes, and this without violence. To fight decides who is the stronger, the younger, and the more skillful in the use of arms, but it does not decide who is right. That is to be settled by the heaven in your own heart. To let the heaven into your heart, to cultivate a conscience so sensitive that it can conceive the rights of the other man, is to know wisdom. To decide specific cases for others he thought was to cause them to lose the power of deciding for themselves. When asked what a just man should do when he was dealing with one absolutely unjust, he said, He who wrongs himself sows in his own heart nettles. And when some of his disciples, after the Socratic method, asked him how this helped the injured man, he replied, to be robbed or wronged is nothing, unless you continue to remember it. When pushed still further, he said, A man should fight only when he does so to protect himself or his family from bodily harm. Here a questioner asked, If we are to protect our persons, must we not learn to fight? And the answer comes, the just man, he who partakes moderately of all good things, is the only man to fear in a quarrel, for he is without fear. Over and over is the injunction in varying phrase, abolish fear, abolish fear. When pressed to give in one word the secret of a happy life, he gives a word which we translate equanimity. The mother of Confucius died during his early manhood. For her, he ever retained the most devout memories. Before going on a journey, he always visited her grave, 
and on returning, before he spoke to anyone, he did the same. On each anniversary of her death, he ate no food and was not to be seen by his pupils. This filial piety, which is sometimes crudely and coarsely called ancestor worship, is something which for the Western world is rather difficult to appreciate. But in it there is a subtle spiritual significance, suggesting that it is only through our parents that we are able to realize consciousness or personal contact with heaven. These parents loved us into being, cared for us with infinite patience in infancy, taught us in youth, watched with high hope our budding manhood, and as reward and recognition for the service rendered us, the least we can do is to remember them in all our prayers and devotions. The will of heaven used these parents for us. Therefore, parenthood is divine. That this ancestor worship is beautiful and beneficial is quite apparent, and rightly understood, no one could think of it as heathendom. Confucius used to chant the praises of his mother. End of chapter 2 Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers Recording by Luke Sartor, Berkeley, California